Welcome to the Angelico Project Presents. The Angelico Project is a lay Catholic initiative in Greater Cincinnati, committed to evangelizing souls and transforming the culture by promoting the good, the true, and the beautiful through the arts, thought, and culture. Today's episode is a discussion about sacred music, featuring Catherine Fishlock, Dr. Mary Catherine Levery, and Emily Mackey. Without further ado, let's begin. Hello, and welcome to a conversation on sacred music sponsored by the Angelico Project. My name is Emily Mackey, and I am delighted to be hosting our conversation today. I am on the advisory board of the Angelico Project, and today we have two very exciting guests with us for this conversation. Um, joining us is Catherine Fishlock. She is the Director of Music Ministry at St. Gertrude Parish in Madeira and is also the Voice Instructor and Choir Director for the Dominican Novitiate. Currently, she's actually serving her 19th class. Catherine, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Emily. It's great to be here. And we also have Dr. Mary Catherine Levery, who is the Director of Music at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology. She received a Doctorate of Musical Arts in Organ Performance from the University of Notre Dame in 2017. Mary Catherine, thank you for being here with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Emily. So I thought as we get started with this topic of sacred music, which some people might have a lot of familiarity with, and for others, this might be new, it might be interesting to begin with your own personal story. How did you come to be here today talking about sacred music? Why, at what point in your life did this become important to you? What is kind of the Cliff Notes version of your, of your own history with sacred music? I consider the presence of sacred music in my life as truly providential because I could never get rid of it. Uh, I began piano lessons when I was eight, and a few years into my lessons, my music teacher at my Catholic grade school asked if I would mind playing the organ for mass. Uh, not knowing anything about the organ, I asked for lessons, and my, my parents very generously obliged. And since then, really, uh, more out of necessity than anything, Catholic churches needing organists and needing people to lead music, I've been involved in, in church music work really since I've been 13. Um, and just even throughout my adult life, you know, I uh, ventured into a, a master's degree program in theology, uh, as you know, Emily, when we, we know well in the, the John Paul II Institute. But even then, I was working with the Institute Choir, uh, and it was really at, at that point in my life, I made the conscious decision to, to pursue it on a, on a graduate level and then pursue it as a career. So it's really always been with me, uh, and I think maybe that, that means God wants me to be working with it. Great. And what about you, Catherine? Well, it's interesting because um, I think that I have some similarities to Dr. Levery's entry into sacred music, except that for me, it really was, um, I do also feel it's a really providential thing that I was, I was more drawn into it much later in life because my entire musical experience was, or my background was that of, of being a performer. That was my absolute goal from the time I was very small. And even though I shifted from being a pianist first and then into singing, um, the realm of church music never entered my my scope what, whatsoever. I was always a practicing Catholic. I went to mass, but 
there was a divide when I was growing up. There was a real divide, an aesthetic divide between church music and classical music, what I was trained to do. And so um, I kind of, you know, I, I went to mass and I practiced my faith, but I, my musical life was completely separate. And then um, after moving to Cincinnati and becoming members at St. Gertrude's, I was introduced to the Dominicans and eventually, uh, you know, was asked to, to be the voice teacher for the novitiate. I was cantering at the parish. And um, the Lord kind of drew me into this whole world that, that had always been important to me, but I didn't necessarily feel I had a place in it because I didn't go to school for sacred music. I had to study it in music history and was always thinking, wow, this is Catholic music. This belongs to us. I've never heard this in church in real life, you know, so there was, there were certainly seeds planted, but eventually um, I had to, I had to do a lot of self-teaching and exploration and, and digging on my own and, and learning more everything that I could about sacred music and chant in order then to, to do my job for the novitiate. And then um, eventually it, it just grew and, um, and I was over the years eventually asked to be the music director at St. Gertrude's and that's where I am at present. So I guess one question that would come up pretty quickly is what is sacred music? Yeah, well, um, I, I, I would say that to put sacred music in a, a, a general category that it is, um, Typically, it's going to be vocal music because in order to recognize it as sacred, there, there must most usually be a text, you know, a text having to do with religion of some kind. So I would say most sacred music is choral music or vocal music, not exclusively. But um, I think how it differentiates itself from secular music is that secular music then is is of the world. It's, um, it's, it's more geared toward worldly things and worldly experiences and not the worship of God or a musical setting of scripture. Um, I would say to answer your question about the classical music idea, um, the roots of all Western music are deeply found in the bedrock of the Catholic Church, because historically this is where all of Western musical notation came from, and compositional forms grew out of the compositions for, the, for church, for liturgical purposes. So really everything that grew out of that, even into, you know, the uh, in Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and on and on and on, those norms and tools for composition uh, are rooted historically in the in the, the 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 techniques of musical writing in the church. I would add to that really the identity of sacred music. I think when it comes down to it, is one of practical use. Um, I study with my seminarians the history of the Requiem Mass every, every other year. And it's interesting how um, as we get into the 17th and 18th century and the realm of secular music really starts to gain kind of an identity of its own separate from the church, you have composers who are being commissioned, who are wealthy and so are simply writing for the sake of writing music. Whereas in the history of sacred music, um, 
pieces are always written with a particular function in mind. That is, here is a mass uh, for a requiem for a member of the royalty, who's Spanish royalty, who's died. Uh, here is a setting of the Panis Angelicus for this particular mass. Here is a mass setting uh, for the celebration of the coronation of this particular king or duke. Um, so really, in its ethos, it, it always had a very practical intention and a practical use. Um, it's, so sacred music is always tied up with ritual worship. It, it is always for something. Would you say that sacred music can exist outside of the liturgy? So for example, can someone listen to a recording um, of the Requiem Mass within their home? Is it still considered sacred music or does it take on a different form in that setting? Uh, I would say absolutely. I mean, most of the music that I listen to is sacred music, um, no matter where I am. Um, and yeah, sure, it still it falls within the category of sacred music, um, regardless of where you might hear it. Um, now, there, there are certain sacred pieces that would not necessarily fall under the category of liturgical in that uh, they're more meant to be a concert work, you know, work that that uh, even though it might have a sacred text or even a mass text, say, for instance, uh, the Requiem of Verdi was meant to be a concert piece. It wasn't meant to be used actually as a Requiem mass. So that's kind of an example of where there's this 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 crossover and where you could have a sacred piece um, that is more intended as a concert piece of music. But at the same time, would you say that if you are listening to sacred music within your own home, how does that impact oneself? Like, how does that, does that sort of music form or teach or have an impact on a person? I think certainly it does, even if the, that particular moment, the person is not listening to it in the context of a liturgy. Um, and I, I can speak from personal experience of this, just as there's something very, very beautiful about contemplating the prayers of Mass outside of Mass, there's also value in listening to the music of the Mass outside of Mass. Uh, it gives you a kind of fresh take. You can have a different focus. When the liturgical action is not taking place there at that moment, uh, it allows a, a, certain kind of, a certain kind of focus on the words or on the quality of the melodies uh, or the compositional techniques that the composer is using. So I, I think it's a really wonderful thing that sacred music would have a kind of life even outside the liturgy. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, and maybe just a little piggyback on that. Um, I once um, heard a, a priest friend of mine say that, um, that the world must not spill into the liturgy, but it's it's always a good thing if the liturgy spills out into the world. So if we are listening to to sacred music in our homes and you know we're playing it for our children, that's um, we're we're feeding our Catholic selves, you know, culturally and aesthetically and spiritually. Would you say that there are things beside 
the content um, of the words, are there certain things about the music itself that are different when it comes to sacred music, certain um, types of, um, I don't know how to say it, but are, you know, are there things that are distinctive about the form, um, the melody, the harmony, um, you know, the instruments that are used? Are there things distinctive about sacred music um, in addition to, you know, singing the scriptures or, or words of prayer and praise? I, I certainly think so. Um, that sacred music has and must needs have a, a particular sound. Um, I think in one sense, that's a very wide path to walk down. I think there's a spectrum of, of sacred sound, or I should say liturgical sound. Uh, but I do think it's important to kind of remember our particular Roman Catholic heritage in the heritage of Gregorian chant, which Benedict XVI had referred to as the model of sacred music. So you, hear how composers, you know, starting with uh, the early Renaissance, you know, all the way up until our times now, have drawn inspiration from the sound world of Gregorian chant, whereas they might not even be composing with Gregorian melodies in the particular texture of the music, but you can feel in the ethos that um, maybe it's the flow of the melody, maybe it's the modality of the harmonies, maybe it's simply the way the text flows, uh, that they've drawn a particular inspiration from that repertoire. Uh, while certainly there's room enough for music that doesn't in a very overt way draw on Gregorian chant, I think it's, it's a good, I, I think we can look at it and its relationship to uh, you know, a, a repertoire that's flourished, that, that's grown out of it. I can think we can see that as an example of a body of musical work that's informed the, the sound and style and really the ethos of sacred music across the centuries. Absolutely. I would 100% um, agree with that. And that really um, Gregorian chant is, is really the signature sound of Catholic music, if we think of it that way. And its influence, um, rightly so, has continued on down through the centuries. Um, it's it's really kind of a beautiful thing how um, it can so inform composers generation after generation after generation in that um, that kind of universality. There's a there's an essence and a flavor to that musical language that carries on through the centuries. And I think, uh, you know, as Dr. Levery was saying, this, uh, the, the technical aspect of, of form and modality and uh, the, the actual sound of particular combinations or configurations of notes, but also in a general way, what is it that's going to create um, a, a sense of, of solemnity and dignity and beauty always? in a way that is not evocative of secularism or, or the world. That, that is also very, uh, very much in keeping with what we're after in terms of liturgical music. It's interesting. I'm thinking of um, the element of timelessness and how there are certain 
songs that you know we might hear in in a church building that you can you can date them very easily yes <laughs> you know oh that 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 has a sound of the 60s or the 70s or something like that right but there's something about um chant and you know certain pieces of sacred music that they they have this timeless element which then leads us to contemplate something of god's transcendence as well which is you know the a unity of the the method of the of the music as well as what we are singing about you know who god is and in in praise of him do you have you encountered anyone who um has um been transformed by sacred music you know have you seen that um that music sacred music has a capacity to evangelize or to really um impact and um you know foster a love of god or an interest of god that maybe someone didn't have have you seen this at any point I have for sure. Um, I know actually a number of converts to the faith who who told me that it was the music of the church that drew them drew them closer and closer and sort of piqued their curiosity. In fact, um, probably my favorite example of this is a a friend of mine who was um, he was a, a really talented, actually quite successful rock and roll drummer and he was making a career and um in playing in rock bands and he however he had he was a serious he had he had gone to music school so he'd studied music history and he encountered the works of thomas tallis and palestrina and victoria he had encountered these things when he was in school and when he got out into the world of of pop music and rock and roll he 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 returned to those pieces of music and br it brought him to an absolute complete conversion, not only to the, to the faith, but he is actually now a priest. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I know what comes to mind is a, is a story from my time working with the liturgical choir at Notre Dame. We saw not only a, a fair number of undergraduates pass through that, that choir, that would sing for the 10 a.m. Sunday Mass at the Basilica every Sunday, but also a good share of graduate students in sacred music who would come to Notre Dame to study organ, to study choral conducting. And there had been one fellow who was sort of making his way uh, along the pit stops of Christianity. He had been raised, raised Baptist, had entered the Anglican Church, uh, and was sort of in a state of of indecision or wasn't sure quite where he was going to go next. And he joined the choir as a grad assistant and all the undergrads sort of fell in love with him. He had a wonderful personality, very energetic. Uh, he just kind of breathed life uh, into the group uh, that hadn't been there before. And I remember his first Lent in the choir, he he had decided several months previous that he wanted to enter the Catholic Church. And so he entered at a daily mass during Lent, and as a surprise, his friends in the choir had invited the whole choir to show up, and we sang, we sang a motet during communion uh, to sort of surprise him after he had received his first communion. Uh, I mean, that was a really, really special day. Uh, and I always think of that, uh, when you think about how has sacred music 
you know, caused conversion in people and brought them closer to the Lord. That that was really, really special, how that conversion took place uh, within a group of young people who who were seeped uh, in the Catholic liturgical music tradition. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite memories. Wow, I know several years ago there um, was a you know rise in the popularity of Gregorian chants on a mainstream level. You know, why do you think that is? That people were you know at the time you know everything was CDs, so they were gobbling up all of these CDs and listening to them and and talking about how peaceful they were. You know, why do you think that <laughs> resonated with people so much? Yeah. Well, a couple things. I think, and this harkens to what Catherine was saying about the sound of Gregorian chants. I think it there's there's no ambiguity about where chant belongs. When you hear it, people almost intuitively know, right? It belongs uh, in a big church, a bit a, a Catholic church, right? Like people kind of imagine that the old school church, the Church of History. Um, so that otherworldly sound. I think is very, very attractive uh, to, you know, most, if not all people. I, to me, I think it, it, it speaks to the, the, the imago dei or the thirst for God uh, in the soul of every person, even if they're not articulating it that way, right? Um, and secondly, though, um, so I, I think there's actually something very deep going on. Uh, on the level of of commerce and uh, commercialization and um, making money, although I doubt the Spanish monks had this in mind, um, I think it, it was very largely treated as kind of an antidote to anxiety. Like this is this is my Zen music. It helps me relax. Like it helps me, uh, you know, get rid of the road rage. This this kind of thing. <laughs> On one level, I think it there was it the response was coming from something very deep. But I think in how we were talking about it, it was maybe considered more therapy than anything. But uh, but go ahead, Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think at the time that, um, you know, what was this, maybe 15 years ago, maybe? I remember this when I was like 12. So it was like the 90s, I think, even. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So so even longer. Um, But I remember when that chant CD of the the monks of Santo Domingo came out and it was really all the rage. And um, I I do think you're right. I think there was um, it was this new discovery of a sound that a lot of people had never heard before. And um, I think in a way, um, the 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 world of kind of modern 60s and 70s and 80s church music actually did us a favor in that. Um, chant had so disappeared from from the sensibilities of of the people that that when it came back, it was it really had this impact of being literally out of this world, which is what we want in the in the in the mass, especially right this out of time, out of out of space kind of um, experience. And I and I do think most people who are listening to it didn't know what it was or what it meant, but that even even though that's even a little more telling that the impact on people on their on their physical being on their their blood pressure on their heart on their soul that it it really has um it has a soothing um peace creating effect on the human soul so switching gears a little bit from this mainstream audience to the seminary um it's interesting that you both 
teach seminarians and um, and um, religious novices. And there's this story that I always find amusing about Carol Wojtyla, who became John Paul II. And during World War II, when he was an underground seminarian, he would work at night. And um, the other seminarians would kind of, you know, I'm not seminarians, the other workers would, um, you know, kind of give him time to study and, um, and, and take care of his, you know, other duties as a seminarian, whether or not they knew he was in a seminary, they just knew that he was very studious and um, that he was different um, than, than they were in terms of his interests and all of that. But um, this one fellow worker of his one time told him, you know, Carol, you you should become a priest. You sing well. And I think, well, that's not exactly what we're, you know, the top thing looking for in a priest. But at the same time, both of you are working with men who are preparing for the priesthood and religious life. Why do you think that's so important? Why do they need formation in sacred music? What does that have to offer them, not just in terms of a practical ability to, you know, hopefully be able to sing on key, but what does that um, bring into their own lives, their ministry, their sense of liturgy? You want to take that sure. one, Mary Catherine? I'll, for I'll start. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Looking at looking at it from the the biggest perspective. Um, what does singing and what does sacred music mean for them as, as future priests, as, as men of God? Um, to me, I want to articulate this well. To me, singing, especially for this, these young guys, often kind of symbolizes um, that the really, really frightening leap of faith sort of, or you know, the leap you take when you're risking you know, you're risking failure, you're risking sin, you're risking uh, the misunderstanding of your family and friends, right? But you venture down this path of vocation, right? With, uh, you know, in their case, the priesthood, right? But in other cases, whether it be marriage uh, or whether it be, um, you know, holding fast to a belief, like I'm, I'm thinking kind of a Franz Jägerstatter story in The Hidden Life, right? With the decision he made to lay down his life. I mean, all the risks he took, all the, you know, all the, the loss that his family suffered, and yet he clung fast to his faith. To me, singing, right, putting your voice out there, especially for a guy, I think is very, very difficult because you make yourself vulnerable. Uh, you you open yourself up to to criticism to misunderstanding, uh, but I tell them you know the life of virtue is about risking sin right you might make a mistake you might you know commit a venial sin you might make somebody angry you might so you really do kind of in the baptized life you kind of have to jump off a cliff and put yourself in the hands of God so I think learning to sing for them. Uh, is just sort of one more lesson in, in how to be really, really strong men, uh, strong men for God in their priesthood. Uh, and th there's nothing more beautiful to me than when a, a guy will come for a voice lesson for the first time and I say, why do you want to take voice lessons? And they'll say, because I want to be able to chant the mass beautifully. Um, that it's, I'm, that, that always deeply, deeply touches me. And I, I, I know they're entirely sincere and they want to give that gift to the faithful. 
Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. And um, I couldn't agree with you more that um, this whole idea of vulnerability is so much. It, that's so much a part of learning how to sing because you are the instrument. You're not separated by anything else. You're not holding a, a violin or a flute or a, an instrument that is separate from your your very physical being. And I think for a lot of a lot of guys, um, it's it's a real exercise in humility, whether they have a very beautiful voice or not. I think it's the, it's one of the first places where some of them encounter being told, um, you know, we need to work on this or you need to fix that or you know what I mean. There there can be very real technical things to overcome, and so it's a whole part of their um, of their education and their formation really that. Uh, that might be completely out of their comfort zone. So there's that that part of it. But I think also from uh, simply from a perspective of um, Catholic uh, factual, um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> from what the church wants, right? The Holy Mother Church wants the Mass to be sung. So, so it is not just necessarily um, this extra I want to say I want to be able to pray an extra beautiful mass. It's really I want to be able to do what the church is asking of me, um, and so there there actually was a time when it was hard to get into seminary if a if a young man couldn't sing because it really was it's so much a part of the liturgical life of the church, not only the mass but in the singing of the divine office as well. Yeah, that's very insightful. Thank you both. Um, one thing I think we tend, I don't know, I think a stereotype of sacred music is that it is a thing of the past, that, you know, we can recreate it today in some sense, but that there is no, um, there's no more, there's nothing new, you know, this is all, you know, you have to borrow from the age of Mozart or something like that, right? But um, are there composers today in the realm of sacred music? Are there um, people that we should be aware of or particular trends in, you know, a rise in um, not just um, singing, sacred music today, but also not, you know, enchanting it, but also in, in actually writing it. Absolutely. Uh, I think maybe the most recent new piece that's been written really in the past year or so uh, is the mass of the Americas by Frank LaRocca. Mm. Um, a really, yeah, beautiful. really, really beautiful piece that was first performed uh, for a mass said by Archbishop Cordelione at the Basilica, the national shrine in DC. Um, LaRocca has also, I'm, I'm not aware of his, in, of his entire uh, repertoire that he's composed, but I know he's composed numerous motets. So he, he certainly has composed a, a good bit of sacred music. Uh, speaking of the National Shrine, uh, the director of music there, Peter Latona, uh, has written some very nice chant-based congregational mass settings. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure some motets and a good bit of pieces for his choir there, uh, which which is which is also a point. I know um, really any director of music at a church uh, knows there's far too many feasts and occasions that um, there's more feasts <laughs> and occasions than there are music sometimes, right? <laughs> Especially given the capabilities of the musicians you have. Uh, so I think really the the hardest working sacred musicians are composing themselves. 
Uh, um, I mean, Catherine can attest to this. Um, I know like she's done some work of her own. I know I'll have to come up with responsorial Psalms for the seminarians when we do a Latin Mm -hmm. or Spanish mass. Uh, so there are the composers we know of, right. Who are publishing. And then there are the composers who are just writing, writing, writing for their own choirs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know a young man in the chorale, uh, who frequently writes for, for his own, own choir at his parish. Yeah, I really, um, there, there, this is a great question, Emily, because I think that is one of the things that comes to mind when people, um, well, especially in discussing things like, um, why can't we just stay with the type of music that I grew up with? Say, like, sometimes people get locked in their, in the, uh, the sentimentality of, in the remembrances of their youth. And, um, so, there, there's this one little tiny slice of time that people want to have for church music all the time. And that's, you know, that's no different than people saying, well, no, it's got to be older because that's better, you know, <laughs> or whatever it might be. But I think um, as we were just referring back to this, this kind of signature sound that, that really, really um, authentic Catholic liturgical music captures is timeless and it will be it will continue to be written the lord as long as the as long as the church exists in time i believe that the lord will continue to put people on the earth who can compose music that is fitting for the liturgy it will change with the time and you you can hear that throughout the centuries you can hear how music changes but it maintains that ideal of prayerfulness and reverence and and solemnity and there are actually many many living composers now writing for the church and it's um it's really it's it's great to be a part of it it's great to to bring some of that music to the fore for congregations to begin using wonderful maybe the note for us to end on today is just with this question what um how does sacred music play into the life of the praying faithful? It's not, it's not just, you know, listening to a performance, but it, it should be part of our own prayer. So what, what do you, you know, how would you say that um, can actually happen in one's everyday life? Yeah. Um, I think what's, sacred music has to offer us maybe more, maybe more than ever now, I think is the gift of beauty. Uh, I I think it's a very, very difficult thing to pray and, and pray well. Uh, I, I, I know I personally struggle with it every day. Um, I think it's really, really hard to quiet oneself, uh, and be authentic interiorly, right. And just kind of be empty. I think prayer is hard in the same way that listening is hard. So I think kind of the gift of sacred music is that when it's done well and when it's truly beautiful, it can kind of stop you, uh, maybe even stun you, right, and absorb you. So it's it's almost, I mean, it's a grace. It's a complete, it's in a sense, I think it's the gift of focus, right? It makes you want to pray. It makes you want to enter more deeply into the mystery. So, so I think 
with that gift of beauty, it can be a real gift for souls, kind of the, the gift of the desire to pray, the desire to enter into worship and be closer to God. Um, like, I, I, I really do think it's that gift. I mean, Augustine talks about, I mean, kind of the underside of it. He talks about, oh, I, I love the, the melodies more than I love the words. Like, I'm swept away. Certainly, maybe that's, a, maybe that's an issue. But I also think there's another side to it. And I, I think the beauty of it, um, you know, which includes the words but is bigger than the words, can, can draw you to the Lord. Uh, so it's, it's a really important vocation. Uh, being a sacred musician. Right. right. And our job really is to um, just to speak to exactly what you're saying, Mary Catherine, this whole idea that our job as sacred music, as, as church musicians, is to draw people more deeply into the mystery of the liturgy, closer to the Eucharist, closer to the, to the source and summit. And um, so it's never about, you know, being entertaining or just passing the time or just singing a song. There's, there's a purposefulness always. And as uh, Pope Pius X, I have just a little, um, a little quote here from a very famous document that he wrote in 1903. Um, he says straight out, the purpose of sacred music is to the glory of God and the sanctification of souls. So our work really, um, really is impactful in the, in the ability of the people to pray and grow in holiness. Well, thank you so much, Mary Catherine and Catherine, <laughs> for sharing your expertise with us today. So thank you to both of you and thank you to all of our listeners as well for our conversation on sacred music sponsored by the Angelica Project. We hope you enjoyed this production of The Angelico Project Presents. If you would like to learn more about The Angelico Project or explore ways to get involved, please visit angelicoproject.org. Thank you for listening, and until next time, God bless.